girls are complicated. Episode 44 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today are regular panelists Katie Grubbs and uh, guest, friend of the show, and fellow Christian Humanist Radio Network member Danny Anderson. Hey, Katie and Danny. Hi. Hello. So, uh, before we get started, Let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program and for any of our listeners that might not know Danny. Katie, you go first. So I'm Katie Grubbs, and I just finished back in May. I finished PhD in English Lit at the University of Georgia and have just started this uh, semester. I'm teaching at Houston Baptist University here where we live in Houston, and uh, I'm really, really excited to be back in the classroom after a break of about 18 months. So that's kind of what's been going on in my life this week, and I'm really excited to uh, to teach this semester. Great. Uh, thanks, and congratulations again. I think we've already said it on the show, but uh, congratulations again for finishing up the degree. We all know how tough that is. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I know. We, we joke that now we, our students might get confused because now my husband also teaches at HBU, David Grubbs of the, the Christian Humanist Podcast. So now there's two Dr. Grubbs on campus as of this week, and so hopefully nobody gets confused by that. We don't teach the same class, so it should be fine. We uh, went through that, too. I used to say uh, that uh, that I was both the nice one and the pretty one, and he was the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Though I'm, I'm sure a number of students uh, disagreed with the first designation, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Danny, how about you? Introduce yourself. Oh, sure. Uh, my name is uh, Danny Anderson. I teach English. I uh, have a PhD as well from Case Western Reserve University. Back in 2012, I finished. Uh, and I teach English currently and hopefully finally here at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And um, I host another show in this podcast network called Sectarian Review. Um, I've had Carla Ewert, uh, who's kind enough to sit in with one of my episodes, and I'm very excited to be back on uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast. And uh, since since Danny is, is probably too humble and polite to do it, I will say, listeners, if you're not already subscribed to the wonderful, uh, intelligent, and often very funny Sectarian Review, uh, you'd, you'd really, uh, I think I think you're missing out. Um, especially if you like the pop culture discussions that we do on this show, as I know a lot of you do. Um, there's a lot of fabulous cultural criticism to be had on that show, so be sure to check it out. Uh, and Thank you. You're uh, and, and if I, w- one quick plug, if you do like the pop culture stuff, our next two episodes will be both uh, about science fiction. So if you're in- interested in that, I have uh, two guest hosts that contacted me separately about doing sci-fi episodes, and we were able to spin that out into two so um i was i was very excited to do that so yeah those those sounds like uh sound like fun i've been following some of those facebook discussions uh as well so that should be a good time 
Okay, uh, and I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer, as most of you probably know. Uh, I am currently on an ACLS public fellowship uh, working at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. Actually just wrapped up the first year of my two-year fellowship, so halfway through, uh, which seems kind of crazy. Sometimes I feel like I've been working there forever, and sometimes I feel like I just started. Anyway, halfway through that. Um, and maybe I guess we should go ahead and start talking about what we're actually talking about today. So one of the reasons that we have Danny on this episode is that he recommended the article we're discussing today uh, to us, posted it on our Facebook page, and said that we should um, we should talk about it. So when we had a little trouble getting a third panelist, I thought he might like to do it. And the article we're discussing is called... Facebook Feminism, Like It or Not, by uh, someone some of our listeners might be familiar with, Susan Faludi, who's uh, a a pretty famous um, feminist critic, and I I kind of mean that in two senses, um, in that she performs feminist criticism, and in that she is often a critic of the feminist establishment, kind of keeps it on its toes, uh, and that's one of the things that she's doing here in uh, in this piece, but she's she's never afraid to debate um, kind of big feminist voices. She's debated Naomi Wolf about the politics and morals of abortion, and Gloria Steinem about uh, pornography and agency, whether feminists should be uh, anti or pro porn or something else. If you know her name, you probably know her name because of her in my opinion, very strong, uh, 1991 book, Backlash, The Undeclared War on American Women. She argues that the anti-feminist backlash that kind of hit um, American society in the late 80s, early 90s is due to a misunderstanding of the goals of feminism, a kind of stereotyping around what it wanted for women, uh, especially working women. So when Faludi does feminist criticism, she does it in a way that isn't afraid to uh, to offend or kind of step on the toes of the establishment, and also in a way that brings a lot of history and nuance uh, to the table. I think all of those things are true of the article that we're discussing today. Um, so before we before we jump into the article itself, which we'll do soon. Um, I want to kind of talk about what we're calling this episode. This episode, when you see it, will be titled Corporate Feminism. Um, So what do you guys think of of that term? Uh, When you hear it, what what comes to mind in terms of the progress of the feminist movement? Uh, Danny, why don't you take a whack at it first? Oh, sure. Um, Well, that term, I mean, to me, it just sort of describes the way that, I guess, capitalism, capital C, capitalism, tends to devour things that stand in its way and, and, and things that oppose it and therefore sort of incorporate it into the capitalist ideolo- ideology and transform things that are adversarial, say, uh, into working for capitalist agendas. And so much of what this article um, gets at, I think, is highly descriptive of the way particularly consumer capitalism in its kind of more modern forms um, um, take something that is 
a, a standing critique of uh, social structures and political structures and make it work for those very same social structures and political structures. Uh, and, and so for me, that's kind of the draw uh, to this article and why I recommended it to you guys. Okay, great. So that, that kind of sets up, um, I think, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, which is um, how, how much has capitalism infiltrated feminism as we know it? Um, how, how pure does a, a set of politics need to be um, to be adhered to? I, I think there's a, a lot of um, interesting questions there. So thanks for, thanks for teeing that up really nicely for us. <laughs> no problem. And uh, sorry for my sports metaphor people who do not like it when we use sports metaphors on this show. <laughs> uh, but sometimes it just happens. Uh, Katie, how about you? Corporate feminism, what do you think when you hear it? So I, I think that, and this is a little bit wide of what, of what is in the article for today, but when I, when I kind of first thought about when you first posed the question, to me it kind of evokes the way that celebrities use the term feminist as part of their kind of branding and marketing strategy. Um, and I feel like I've noticed it more and more lately so that it's, it's and, and I think sometimes it's meant sincerely, but I also think sometimes it's used as shorthand as particularly with young female celebrities as a way to say, hey, I'm a confident and powerful and progressive person just like you. You know, it's, it's almost a kind of shorthand for a certain, um, for saying I'm a certain type of person. And, you know, and especially because I think back to, you know, a couple of years ago when you have kind of Taylor Swift saying, oh, I'm not really a feminist. And then everybody gets upset. And then, you know, she comes back later and says, oh, no, no, I know what it means. And I totally am now, you guys, you know, and it's this kind of um, so I don't know, it's, it's almost something that can be like worn on a T-shirt, I guess, as a way to brand yourself and how you sometimes see that in the media. And I, that, that's kind of what the, the phrase is, that almost kind of glamour magazine feminism, for lack of a better way to say it. That's kind of what I thought of when you said corporate feminism. But again, that's a little bit wide of what we're discussing today. I, I definitely think it's connected. Um, and it's my, my thoughts were, were pretty in line with your thoughts. Um, I, I immediately thought of a, a term I've been seeing cropping up um, recently, the idea of femvertising. Have you guys heard this term? No. That one's new to me. Okay. Uh, so femvertising, um, which I've, I've also heard um, kind of more derogatorily referred to as pinkwashing, um, the idea that, like, it's sort of advertising to women, but it's advertising that knows it's advertising, and advertising that, like, masquerades as... Um, as feminism or that uses the language of feminism in order to sell a product. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, recent You Buy Kotex campaigns, um, the, the Kotex tampon company. It's like their new cool um, kind of teen, I wouldn't say entirely teen, but definitely like 18 to 30 um, marketing campaign. They come in a black box and the commercials are like, um, they show sort of traditional tampon commercial things, uh, frolicking in a field while wearing white pants, uh, as, as one does, you know, um, and, and then kind of make fun of those images like they know that they're previous marketing campaigns. That's um, interesting. Yeah, so, so yeah. that's that's what femvertising is. This sort of, hey, look, I'm selling a product, selling of a product um, geared toward women. That's really interesting. I, I, I know the product you're talking about, but I hadn't seen the commercials for it. It's kind of funny that it's, you know, it's 
trying to appeal to that sense of irony, but still totally pushing you to buy the product. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's true. Um, and I, I taught those commercials um, when I was still teaching a couple of times, and it was interesting to see student reactions to them because some of them um, – like really understood the way the irony was working and some of them were just like i don't understand why we're talking about tampons in school mm. <laughs> uh, which which i suppose you know speaks to it another kind of social uh conditioning another kind of social reality yeah i feel like um this is the subversive power of the dvr because because of that technology, I don't really watch commercials anymore, and so I'm totally unaware of this. I'm, I'm glad to know about it, but uh, but yeah, I I haven't been uh, had the privilege of watching any of those yet. So that that's that's an interesting point. Uh, maybe the the DVR has changed how we interact with advertising. Okay, so we should probably uh, get into the article itself now. Um, Danny, since you recommended it to us, um, how about you give us a a quick summary of uh, of what the article argues. Sure, um, this is a, a pretty uh, nice little primer for labor history as well, uh, and and just kind of Victoria reminded us uh, before we started recording that we're recording this the day before Labor Day, and I think it's kind of uh, a fitting timing. Uh, whoever, whenever you hear this, and and on a personal note, my oldest daughter was born on Labor Day, and uh, and I happen to be born on May 1st. So I have kind of a deep uh, connections to labor movements uh, genetically even. So uh, so this maybe that's why this article uh, stood out to me uh, more than many do. But it begins with uh, the description of a kind of a simulcast rally for the lean in uh, movement. Um, and so and it kind of it, it I guess the rally begins at Menlo Park and it's spread off to college campuses. And uh, and we're going to talk about some of the religious um, symbology used in this essay. But it begins by describing the listeners of this rally as a congregation. And, and one particular um, term that she uses to describe it is a TED talk cum tent revival cum Mary Kay convention and I think that that's uh, she's setting up her sort of social critique very in very clever ways at the beginning but um, I think the ultimate critique of the lean in movement which is what this is particularly focused on um, is the fact that it emphasizes individual agency over collective action and this is where she goes into sort of the uh, the history of feminism with the labor labor movement, and um, and so in other words, the lean in movement suggests that if you are not as a woman succeeding, it's because you're too timid and you need to sort of just be more powerful, right? And it, and it neglects and it diminishes or uh, uh, the more kind of external factors that systematically keep women. Um, from succeeding as to the degree that men do. And so this is kind of the basis of the critique. And um, she immediately or very nearly at the beginning talks about the feminism's quote, dance with capitalism. And so she's talking about how early feminist movements sort of spring out of industrial capitalism. And as an example, she goes to Lowell, Massachusetts, and these mill workers, these um, female uh, mill workers who unionize, basically. And she tells a really uh, interesting history about that unionization movement, um, emphasizing all the while the communal action over the individual action that took place then. Um, and then 
she tries to subvert, I think, to some degree, the triumphant narrative of feminist achievement and by pointing out that many of the opportunities available to women still tend to be um, on a lesser rung of a lower rung of the ladder, a corporate ladder, particularly than men. And then she goes into this um, distinction between uh, industrial capitalism and consumer capitalism. And I think much of what um, Katie was talking about with her uh, uh, sense of the word corporate feminism, uh, I think that's kind of what she's getting at here is the fact that feminism is kind of like a, 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 an identity you purchase and assemble for yourself. uh, One of kind of girl power as it were. And so, and for her, this is, not productive on a grander social scale. Um, and then I think that, um, the essay kind of fittingly ends with a visit back to Lowell. It's it's a nicely constructed rhetorical essay. Um, I think it would be a great thing to assign in class actually, just on the, the rhetoric rhetorical approach that it takes, but she goes back to Lowell to some of these, uh, mills, which are now museums of kind of labor history. And she's actually speaking with people, who experienced uh, the labor kind of um, end of feminism. And she basically paints them as totally um, disconnected from what Susan Sandberg is doing with the lean-in movement. That is so much more focused on uh, upper echelon, I think is the term she uses in the essay, uh, types of folk that it neglects the working class people who have pretty unique um, uh, challenges that the lean-in movement does not address or even help. Um, and so I think uh, in terms of its relationship with the labor movement, that's a, a pretty succinct summary. I'm sure I've left things out, though, so I'll let uh, you guys fill in the blanks. Uh, I, I think that that's, uh, that's a really good summary. Um, I, I don't really have anything to add to it. Katie, would you like to add anything? Um, just one other thing that, that I think she talked a good bit about that um, I don't I don't think that Danny mentioned is just that she also kind of takes to task the idea of that the lean in movement has these corporate partners. Um, and this was one, I guess, and this is maybe a more a specific example she gave of what Danny was talking about of individualized identity versus corporate or collective action so that they have these lean in partner companies like Costco and Walmart and some other companies that are partners of the movement, but these, but the same companies are kind of undergoing lawsuits because of sexual discrimination or things like this. So that it, you know, that she's seeing this as a huge conflict of interests, but then, you know, in speaking to Sheryl Sandberg and the Facebook people, they don't seem to see a problem with it. And that was another kind of big section of, of the, the article that something that she talked about a lot, just giving some different examples of different companies that are kind of affiliated in this token way with the movement, but then have these other what she called kind of women problems or, or issues that are going on. And especially, I think, if you look at how um, how Sandberg's PR department responded when Faludi asked that question, um, you mentioned that phrase, a woman problem. She says, a number of Lean-In's corporate platform partners seem to have a woman problem. Most notably, they're not alone the sex discrimination legal actions against Walmart and Costco. Uh, how do you ensure corporate partners are not signing up as a way of whitewashing this issue? Um, and then they say, uh, we are not setting up a watchdog organization or an audit function. Rather, we are providing high-quality educational materials and technology at a scale that companies can use to improve their understanding of gender bias. So we're just a messenger 
And, and I think the implication is, and we're mostly just trying to be a messenger to women and not talking to companies directly anyway. So again, um, in individuals and, and not collective action. Right. And, and also I think that that's a, uh, th- those examples that she gives are kind of pointed at the fact that companies are using this to sort of buy street cred, as it were, <laughs> and, and there's no real action then required of them um, in order to gain this sort of certification from the lean-in movement. They just have to sort of sign up for it uh, without any kind of, if there's no watchdog uh, function to the lean-in uh, movement, then anybody can really join it, right? Um, and, and it does ser- serve to whitewash the uh, uh the checkered history with feminism that many of these companies do have. And I do, I love the, uh, at the end of the essay, she has the questions that she submitted and the sort of corporate answers that come back and they, we reject the premise. We <laughs> reject the premise. Uh, yep. it's, uh, there's a very kind of like a uh, defensive posture coming from, uh, that end of these conversations. Okay. Uh, the, these comments are all great, uh, but I, I want to keep moving forward. So, um, Katie, Danny mentioned earlier the, the kind of religiously toned um, opening of the article. Can you talk more about that and, and what it means for us as people who um, identify both as religious believers and as feminists? Yeah, sure. So, um, just a few other, you know, to give our listeners an idea, uh, which I mean, everyone should also just read the article because it's it's very well written, as Danny said, it almost perfectly constructed. But she uses lots of of different words to kind of create this metaphorical impression of this lean-in summit, as it were, as a kind of church service. So that she calls the people in the audience the congregation, you know, um, Sandberg's the prophet, seal skin sleek, you know, in her black skinny pants. Um, and, uh, you know, even says some clutch copies of the day's hymnal, the speaker's new book, which promised to dismantle internal obstacles, preventing them from acquiring power. And Danny mentioned she also says it's kind of a tent revival atmosphere. And I think that it's interesting to read it as a believer, because I do think that you, you know, anyone who's ever been in revival week can kind of feel that, you know, has felt that energy before. Another thing that that Faludi points out, and then I kind of felt this too, even before she said it a little bit later, is it also very much has the tone of a kind of prosperity gospel situation where, you know, she's saying to the women in the audience, you know, you deserve the best and you can have it. And it's, you know, it's very much an emphasis on on kind of individualized, um, individualized maximizing of potential, I guess, which, and I, I think about that so much more now because we live in Houston and we drive by Lakewood church all the time. And every time I drive by Osteen's church, I like think about, you know, all of that stuff. And it, cause it's just very much in your face here. And so I think it's, it's that same kind of thing. And, and for me, it was really interesting too, thinking about that, the idea of the individualized maximization versus collective action. And, and then thinking about the church and thinking about, our lives as believers, and I think it also has kind of, you can see some of that same same change reflected in the church so that you have things like prosperity messages of God wants you to have the very best, and that's, you know, and and so many churches have shifted more towards that, towards a more kind of consumer spirituality, you know, and I mean, we've, we've had friends who've said, oh, well, you know, I switched churches because, um, you know, the other church I wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. It didn't really do it for me. So, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to pick a different one. And that almost, you know, that so that church as something you consume, as opposed to, I think, a, a kind of 
church focus that's more on personal holiness and helping the needy, you know, and and a more kind of community, you know, environment. And that to me, it almost feels like a parallel to this kind of individualized feminism versus collective action for women. It feels a little bit like that as a kind of, it feels a little bit like the contrast between a personal consumerized experience of faith where you want the exact right place, you know, and you're going to shop around till you find it versus a kind of church experience rooted in collective experiences of faith and helping people, you know, things like that. Those are the kind of things that were in my mind when I was reading this. And I should also say that I definitely think Faludi is using this metaphor in a a kind of sarcastic way. I don't know that, um, you know, I think we're meant to read this religious metaphor she's got going and, and, and realize that the type of religion that she's talking about in this metaphor is a kind of opiate of the masses religion. I don't know that it's, you know, I, that that's kind of how I felt it. I don't know. What about you guys? Um, before you mentioned it um, briefly, I just wanted to add the, the sort of phenomenon you're talking about of, of jettisoning one church and choosing another if it isn't uh, exactly right for you, that I'd heard that phenomenon called church shopping, um, which I, I think furthers the, the capitalist point, though you said uh, shopping around. So uh, good that good that we mentioned that. Um, and also, um, maybe we'll do a, a show on this eventually, but if um, if our listeners are interested in, in reading more about kind of that kind of church commercialism, um, Rachel Held Evans' Searching for Sunday deals with it and kind of grapples um, with that social phenomenon in a really interesting uh, way. I have not read the whole book, but I have read um, several chapters and, and would like to maybe discuss it further. So check that out uh, if it sounds interesting to you. Danny, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, I think Katie's dead on. I think that the idea that you could have religious um, experience without sacrifice is sort of at the heart of this kind of prosperity gospel version of Christianity. And that is the image that she's putting on this endeavor, this particular speech that she's talking about at the beginning. Um, and I think that I, I did a few years ago now, I think, um, I sat in with the Christian Humanist podcast and we talked about David Foster Wallace's, this is water speech. And then famously he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Uh, and I think that that's kind of what is tricky about capitalism, <laughs> uh, consumer capitalism. Let me say this. Uh, let me, let me specify it in that way in that you get the sense that, um, everything is set up to sort of glorify a God, right? Um, but the God is you as a consumer and you get to sort of assemble it for your own empowerment. And I think that the specific religious imagery that she uses in this essay speak much more heavily to that. Right. And, and so I feel like when she's talking, uh, the real, I think that Katie's right. I think that the vision of Christianity, she's, uh, putting forth here is a kind of opiate of the masses kind of uh, religious uh, experience and not necessarily a true one. I don't know that this is an anti, uh, I don't think that she's using the uh, imagery in here to be anti-Christian or anti-religion. I think she's specifically tying it to a rather discredited version of Christianity. Uh, I, I would definitely agree with that. I was not at all offended by her, her, choice of religious language because um, I, I do think she's using it in, in a way to kind of point out re- religiosity rather than religion. Yes, I would say so. Yeah. And I think the TED Talks um, 
imagery. I mean, I, I'm honestly, I have not gotten a chance to watch um, Sandberg's, you know, the the Genesis Ted talk for this whole lean in thing. I haven't got a chance to watch, watch it yet, but Ted talks in general tend to mimic a Joel Osteen sermon <laughs> in a lot of ways. I have, I have particular uh, anxieties about Ted talks and, uh, and I think Victoria, you and I had talked about doing a show about them sometime and, and I, I'm still up for that if you'd like to. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah, I think de- that- definitely <laughs> I am up for that. And I, I have seen Sandberg's Ted talk and, and listeners, um, if, if you are someone who regularly listens to this show, will know that we have done a lean in episode, um, previously on the CFP, but I, I think that the reason I wanted to do this article too is because I think it, um, it, it kind of deepens that discussion. Um, we, we sort of talked about the corporatization of feminism, um, but we didn't talk as much about the diversion from, from labor history, uh, which I, I think is an important thing to, to add here. Which is all about sacrifice, right? Those, those, that corporate movement, um, that in the Lowell Mills that she's talking about here, that is the kind of religious devotion um, that is missing from a prosperity gospel style of, of faith. The, the idea that there's a, a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts, right? That this is about the, the greater good for the most people and for the community and about seeing that there's more than, than just yourself at stake here. Um, and even more than just a group, right? Because... Um, I mean, definitely the the feminist movement um, as it's established in the 19th century is so much about the future and about these women's daughters and the world that they're going to grow up in, um, as is, you know, uh, women's history in in labor strikes and and collective action. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that's that's true. Okay, um, so moving forward a little bit, um, we've been calling this corporate feminism, um, but that's not what the title of the article calls it. The title of the article says that Facebook feminism uh, is here, like it or not. Um, so so why is, is this feminism that Sandberg is sort of the figurehead of, um, why is it Facebook feminism? What does that mean? Um, we, we've already talked about um, the fact that this movement makes individual women responsible for their advancement where Faludi says it should um, place the onus for action on these um, oppressive, unequal, unequitable, um, large corporations. Something we haven't talked about as much um, is the idea of um, joining the lean-in community on Facebook. Um, It's Facebook feminism in that way you join this group and and you kind of both belong to a group for yourself and signal to the outside world that you belong to this progressive thing um also sandberg uh, her her association with working for facebook and some of the things that faludi covers um a- about working there she calls it a, a pink ghetto in certain ways because women are writers and assistants that don't get to advance as much as the kind of tech entrepreneurs, uh, most of whom are men. The the one thing about working at Facebook that jumped out to me at the article is that there's an anecdote that uh, before CEO and founder Mark Zuckerberg's birthday, um, the women of the company were encouraged to wear t-shirts to his birthday celebration that had his face on them. Um, and, and this was something that's memo, like got sent out only to the women 
And that's really weird. Like, I, I work in a media corporation now, uh, and, and that is not a thing that we do, thankfully. Um, I, I, that's just, that strikes me as so strange that that would be asked of someone. Like, what? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah nobody thought that was creepy. Or I guess, you know, nobody handing down the edict thought that was creepy. So what do you guys think about this Facebook feminism uh, term? Is is joining the lean-in Facebook group activism or faux activism? Um, and, and what do you make of the kind of sexist, uh, sexist attitudes that some of the people interviewed here say exist at Facebook and other big companies? Um, I can start. Um, if I, I mean, I think that people who listen to this podcast and all the podcasts in the Christian Humanist Radio Network probably do so because they're looking for something more kind of um, thought-provoking and thoughtful than social media and the kind of memification of, of political thought can, uh, can offer. And so I think that it's so easy to just click like on a page, right? Um, and consider that the end of your involvement in any sort of social change, um, because you just sort of, again, consume, it's a, a form of consumerism. You're, you're selecting the right aspects of a component to make you a sort of good person or whatever, or thoughtful person. And so that's what Facebook is. I mean, it's, it's about clicking the right things, sharing the right memes and, uh, and, and that sort of thing in order instead in, 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 uh, uh, in, uh, without doing any kind of political action. So your actual actions don't matter as much as the things you profess. And, and so I think that in some ways, Facebook is the perfect, uh, location for the, for the lean in movement. <laughs> if we accept the, uh, the, the critique of it in this article. Okay, so I'm going to push back just a little bit, though I agree with what you're saying. Um, we we have Facebook pages and communities for our shows, right? How are we different? Well, I have like 116 likes on my show. <laughs> you have many more than that, but but it's not anywhere near like 75,000, right? And so we're we're I suppose using Facebook as a um, um, a means to capture people who are sort of disaffected by Facebook and it's inescapable part of being, uh, uh, almost inescapable. I suppose there are people who aren't on Facebook, um, and they're good people, but it's an almost inescapable part of being a citizen now is to have a Facebook page. This is how I keep in contact with family members and everything else. Right. And it's just a matter of making sure that your quote unquote activism doesn't end at the sharing of memes and the clicking of like buttons. Um, and so I suppose, yeah, we are part of, um, the social network, but I think that we all use it differently. Um, I, I hope I do at least. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, especially the idea that we are much smaller and, and obviously don't have the resources that communities like that do. And also that Facebook is, is fairly, um, Unavoidable. I guess that's the like it or not uh, in in Faludi's title there. Uh, Katie, what about you? Can you weigh in on any of the? I'm not even sure how many questions we piled into this one topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I I don't have a ton to add uh, to what you guys have been saying, but I do think it's worth 
I, I do think that this topic is a great jumping off point to kind of, as Danny said, to, for, for everybody to kind of think about, are we, when we do join something on Facebook or like something or share something, does it ever go any further than that? I think that's a great question for every, for us all to be asking ourselves about various causes that we might be involved in. And I, I do think it, it is interesting though, and, and there is something, you know, a little bit perhaps insidious about the fact that you must, to get into the link community, you must go through Facebook because it does, it requires then women who want to participate to also be participating in that particular corporation. It's not like when you try to enter a contest, for example, to like win a prize and um, that's being put out by a company, but there's no purchase necessary because you can mail in your little form or you can go to a public website and you can, you know, register. And so in that case, you know, that kind of no purchase necessary mentality is actually true. Anybody can enter the contest. But in the case of something like this, you know, if you want to join in the group, you have to go through Facebook. There's no other way to do it. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're trapped. I mean, I don't know, again, like Jenny said, so many people are on Facebook now. I don't even know that there are, you know, are that many women out there who would want to be part of Lean In who are not on Facebook. But if such a person existed, that person would then be faced with a choice of, do I put myself in a public forum like Facebook make myself accessible to other people that way so that I can participate in this movement. And, you know, I think that they're, and it's, and, and it's interesting to me too, though, that it sounds like the answers that they gave Faludi when she questioned the Facebook people about Lean In, it seems like that they have these vague ideas that maybe then the women who are part of the movement will band together and do something, but it's, it's all very vague. And they talk a lot about, you know, the lean-in circle, particularly the lean-in circles, the kind of support groups as starting points for something, um, something beyond just individualized personal success, but it's all very vague and unclear. And so in the end, it's still about mostly individual women with their individual Facebook accounts, like we were saying, showing the world, hey, I'm, I'm going to lean in, and that's what I'm doing, and it's a, it's a kind of signaling, as, as you guys mentioned before. So I, I, I don't know. It's... It's, it's a hard thing to, to think about because I also think Faludi, she kind of sets it up as almost a binary to me uh, between this kind of, you know, labor union collective action situation and, you know, a kind of, she kind of sets it up as a, a more selfish to me. She seems to be saying more selfish, individualized success. I'm going to maximize my potential and not worry about those other women who are working in the mills, you know, as if, you know, those two things as, as if the, the first is is definitely good, you know, that the collective action is the, the right way to do it, the right way to be feminist. And this other stuff is just not real. There's no there there. It's just words. And it's just about single people and not about everybody else. But I do think that for the admittedly type of, you know, um, for the for the segment of the population who are women who kind of work in a managerial capacity in a big company for the women who work in the kind of job where they could walk in and conceivably try to negotiate for a raise, for women in jobs like that, there could be good in the lean-in movement in the sense that it increases their confidence and helps them to perhaps make some gains in the workplace. You know, and but then it can also be true that that whole thing doesn't really even acknowledge the way that there are so many women who just can't even participate in it because of class, because of the types of jobs they're in. So I think that there's a little more good there than Faludi might be, you know, than, than she might admit or that she might say. But that I, I don't think she's wrong, though, that there's also probably so many women at home thinking, okay, but, you know, 
I can't negotiate for a raise. It doesn't even work like that. You know, I mean, it's so in, in my particular type of job. So it, it was an interesting thing to read. And I have given a very garbled reply. I'm sorry. Those are just things I've been thinking about for the last three days as I've been reading this article. No, I, I think you bring up a lot of good points. And actually, um, the, the point that you began with um, is kind of how the article ends. Um, the, the last answer from... Uh, from lean in to Faludi, they say this is not a zero sum solution. It takes both individual and collective initiative. Um, and then says the question we would ask back is has overall group awareness of these important social issues increased since lean in launched? Though, I mean, to me, that's kind of a silly question because correlation is not causation, right? Like, how could you ever prove that that is or is not true? Um, that that sure. seems like a smokescreen a little bit um but you're right this this zero sum idea is something that i think is a little bit present in the faludi article that we should um we should address also something that that i felt like was a little bit missing from the article and its portrayal of sandberg is the fact that she um she's walked a little of this back since the death of her husband so her her husband was a, a tech um, entrepreneur as well, um, and sh- and she's been fairly open about the fact that um, that balance is is much harder, and then kind of work life uh, work life balance is much more difficult since she's now you know parenting much much differently both because she and and her family are are mourning her husband and Anne because she you know does not have a a dual. Um, parenting life anymore um, so I, I would like to have seen the article address that a, a little bit more um, that the fact that it, it doesn't um, makes me sort of believe in this zero-sum criticism that, that you um, mentioned Katie Are you guys um, ready to move on to our next point sure well, can I add one last thing to that um, last sure. topic uh, the sort of corporate ownership of this version of feminism is to me troubling so the fact that you have to be on facebook in order to to like uh lean in uh, because it's essentially a, a facebook property i mean it's it's run by someone who runs facebook and so it's tied so uh, so closely to that brand I, I can't imagine um other feminists maintaining such strict control um over the use of the term, even <laughs> right, uh, uh, so much over over the use of branding control, which says, I mean, it's just basically for profit, right? It isn't necessarily for social good. Uh, if it was for social good, you would sort of set this free. I would think a little bit more, and so that's kind of another. Uh, this is sort of maybe a, a, an authorship copyright sort of issue, maybe, but um, but to me, that's another thing to be kind of lamentful about for this this movement at least is that it does seem to be owned by someone instead of you know free for all i i think that's that's a, a fabulous point um especially you know when we're talking about the the distance that this kind of feminism has come from from the history of of labor politics um the the idea of of either equal ownership or or the idea that this kind of liberation, um, this kind of group membership, um, is, is for all people, um, equally is, is certainly, um, central to that history. In the spirit of Labor Day, I guess. So, right. yeah. Uh, so I think the, the last thing we're going to do before we, 
do our normal final recommendation segment is a, a kind of lightning round of concepts or passages from the article. Um, since we've all mentioned that, that we like it very much and that it's well written, uh, but because it's also quite long, um, anything that we have not mentioned or a, a quote that we'd like to throw out there for our listeners uh, that you think we should cover, Danny, you go first. Okay. Um, I, I guess I want to just reemphasize the role of consumer capitalism uh, in this movement. Um, on It's somewhere near the middle of this essay. She writes, the, the rising new forces of consumer manipulation, mass media, mass entertainment, national advertising, the fashion and beauty industries, popular psychology, all seized upon women's yearnings for independence and equality and redirected them to the marketplace. And that to me is, is key to her critique of the um, motives of this kind of feminism. And I've been recently, um, once again and always, it seems like writing, reading Lionel Trilling and writing about him. Um, I have a conference coming up where I'm going to be using Trilling for something. So he's on my mind again. And uh, there's a quote from one of his essays called um, uh, The Function of the Little Magazine. And he talks about the kind of moment that he's in when a mechanical literacy is spreading more and more, when more and more people insist, as they should, on an equality of cultural status and are in danger of being drawn to what was called by Tocqueville the, quote, hypocrisy of luxury, the satisfaction with the thing that looks like the real thing but is not the real thing. Uh, that's kind of what he's lamenting in sort of mid-century America. And, and I feel like that's kind of what I'm lamenting with this kind of, this version of uh, feminism is that it's um, aimed at the appearance of equality rather than the actual uh, experience of equality. And, and and this is another danger of social media driven enterprises is that the appearance is so much more emphasized than substance. And And, and so for me, that's, I guess, the one thing I wanted to sort of get into the text a little bit and, and reemphasize. Thanks, Danny. Uh, Katie, how about you? So um, just in the interest of kind of giving a sense of the full article, because it is very long, I just wanted to kind of read. There's, there's a bit near the beginning that a few sentences that I think really encapsulate the kind of tension that she's talking about between capitalism and feminism. And I'm just going to read a couple of sentences. But I think this is, a, this is one of the best places where she kind of gives you the gist of the whole idea that she's trying to get across. So she says near the beginning of the article, Sandberg's admirers would say that Lean In is using free market beliefs to advance the cause of women's equality. Her detractors would say, and have, that her organization is using the desire for women's equality to advance the cause of the free market, and they would both be right. And uh, Faludi goes on to say that, that Sandberg embodies that contradiction. And I just think it's a I feel like it was one of the best moments, and, and it was actually near the beginning. I think it would not have come amiss at the end, just as a reminder to kind of what she's been talking about the whole time. But that's the, the kind of finery, that's the kind of turn that all of this is going in, because, you know, her admirers, I think, you know, particularly not, not maybe not necessarily um, people who work for Facebook, but, like, women who want to join in the movement, I'm sure, you know, they're, they're 
to have genuine desires for more workplace equality and for, you know, not just for themselves, but, you know, for, for their friends, for their women they know. And so, you know, they would see it, see it as a good that the free market is, promotes this. But then, you know, I don't think detractors are completely wrong either that, you know, and I think it's, it's part of what Danny's talking about, uh, what she talks about later about this, you know, way of using those desires for good things like equality in the workplace to sell products to, you know, so it, I, I really liked that bit. My other favorite part of the whole thing was the bit that you mentioned, I think you mentioned it earlier, Victoria, at the very end when Faludi went and talked to the women who worked in the mills for decades, and they shared their stories of times that they went on strike, you know, um, they were in one particular case, the, the, the kind of company bosses told these women working in the mill that they were going to take away their lunch hour, which was really a half hour. And so they, uh, they protested and were able to keep their, their lunch time, you know, and then, but then the company bosses said, okay, but okay, but everybody has to work overtime every Saturday. At which point they stopped all the looms in the mill and said, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And, you know, it was really interesting to hear them talk about how, you know, it, how collective action is difficult. It's not easy just to say, and we're all walking out and everybody's okay with it and there's nothing scary. You know, one of the women, the other woman that they spoke to who had never participated in anything like that said that women wanted to at her mill, but that everybody was too scared because they didn't want to lose their jobs. So that was my favorite bit because it, it got um, at kind of the struggles that have still been going on in the more recent past, you know, of some of the same issues that the girls in the Lowell Mills in 1834, you know, that they were also going through. So that was my favorite part. And I thought that it was one of the most, um, you know, kind of, it was, it was humanizing. Some of this stuff is, 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 you know, kind of theory and rhetoric. And she's talking through, she's making an argument and quoting from different texts that they put out and naming different corporations. But then at the end, it just gets very, very personal because she's talking to real specific people and you get their names and you learn their stories. And I thought that was one of the most interesting bits. Uh, thank you for, for yeah. setting me up because I actually wanted to, to name one of those women and, and read from that bit. I think it's important that we talk about them. So, um, so, Faludi does go um, back to Lowell and, and kind of bookend the piece um, since she talks about sort of the um, Lowell Mills in the 19th century. She goes back there and talks to um, women who worked in the mills in the more recent past. Um, one of them is, is named Kathy Randall, um, and Randall organized um, a couple of strikes, uh, Katie, as you mentioned. Um, and I, I just want to read a bit of, of that conversation. So she asks um, Randall and the other uh, woman with them, a woman named D'Souza, um, if they'd heard of Lean In. They say, you know, I don't really get it. Um, I told her that Lean In argues that women need to break down, quote, internal obstacles within themselves that are preventing them from moving up the work ladder. There are a lot of barriers women face, Randall said. She ticked off a few. Lousy pay, no benefits, no sick leave, no unions, sexism, and a still highly segregated workforce. There are a lot of jobs that are still considered women's work, she said. In one of the mills, I was actually just referred to as the girl. Uh, and then down a couple of paragraphs. What about internal obstacles? I asked Randall. The sort of obstacles that cause women to curb their ambitions because they're afraid they won't be likable. She pondered the question for a time. I don't know, she said finally. That's just not the world I came from. Um, and, and for me, like, like you said, 
Katie, um, that, that personalization of the issue, that talking to these women who, um, who did strike and who were scared of it and who saw things like, oh, there's also a passage where Randall talks about um, seeing a woman's arm get sucked into machinery and cut off and they were just expected to, like, start working again immediately um, while the woman is, is taken away and, and Randall, as she's recounting the incident, um, is, is visibly shaken and says, um, she was one of the women that I trained um, and that's just like, I can't imagine, um, having to deal with that, like at work regularly, that's just so foreign from my work experiences. And to think about, you know, there's, there's discrimination and then there's discrimination. Like th- this is something that is, is not at all the same world as what Sandberg is talking about. Um, hearing those anecdotes just really, really struck me. Yeah, those parts were were kind of harrowing, and, and it you know, it's kind of it is it's eye opening. It's a really eye opening thing, and that's what I kind of before I got to that bit in the article. As I was reading along, I was thinking, well, okay, but what about if you don't work a job like Harvard educated Cheryl Sandberg? You know, I was thinking those things the whole time, and you know, and maybe perhaps perhaps that was done on purpose by Faludi when she was writing. Maybe she was kind of meaning to to try to lead the reader into thinking, well, but what about women who aren't you know, who who aren't of that same um, that same type or didn't have that same education? And then at the end, then now that she's led you down this whole way, then she gives you these women. You know, it's very interesting, and I think it was very effective. Huh. Okay, I think we're uh, we're starting to run short on time here, so we should probably jump into uh, our usual last segment where we recommend uh, things we think you should read or watch out for. Uh, Katie, what do you have for us? So way back at the beginning of the podcast, I kind of threw out a, a mention of, of Taylor Swift's kind of feminism. And so I thought I might recommend an article that I, I found. And there's lots of different articles about kind of Taylor Swift feminism. But one of the ones that I found interesting is um, one on Billboard that's called Taylor Swift's Feminist Evolution from July of this year. And it kind of traces, for people who aren't familiar, it kind of traces the journey of, you know, Taylor Swift kind of having, and, the, and it's very interesting because we've been talking about all this religious language in the Faludi piece, but um, the writer Jennifer Armstrong at one point talks about Taylor Swift's, she uses the word conversion to being a feminist, um, you know, after hanging out with her friend Lena Dunham. Um, you know, she kind of talks about it that way. So it's kind of an interesting parallel, the idea that, you know, she was she was kind of lost and unenlightened but then she was, you know, converted into a true feminist. But is it really a true feminism? You know, and then because a lot of people have an issue with Taylor Swift and feel like that she pushes down other women. And so it's it's kind of an interesting exploration of one particular kind of celebrity's um, relationship with that as a brand, feminist as a brand and as a marketing kind of tool. It's, I thought it was really interesting. So that's my recommendation for this. Week. We've also done a CFP episode on Taylor Swift, uh, if you guys have not heard that, where we cover some of those arguments. So shame, shameless internal plug. I, should have said so. I know, I should have said so. That was my bad. I should have done the shameless internal plug myself. I'm sorry about that. My 11-year-old loved that episode, oh, by the way. Oh, fantastic. So. Awesome. <laughs> Danny, uh, how about you give us your recommendation next? Sure. I just uh, happened this week to run across a book called The New Profits of Capital by Nicole Ashoff. And um, it's basically it takes kind of four figures um, and the, from different realms of sort of capitalistic 
activity uh, and, and talks about how it how they tend to co-opt existing um, structures of resistance and so forth. And the very first chapter happens to be about Sheryl Sandberg and the business of feminism. Um, and then there's a there's a chapter on Whole Foods about consciousness, capitalism, Oprah, and the neoliberal subject, and the Gates Foundation, and the rise of philanthrocapitalism. But uh, the the Sheryl Sandberg chapter is really interesting, and it kind of goes off um, of what you guys were talking about with the end of that essay that we've talked about. We've been talking about today, where it kind of gives uh, voice to working class women, um, and in a way that, that that tend to be left behind by things like the Lean In movement. Um, and at one point she says uh, in her chapter that women who channel their energies toward reaching the top of corporate America undermine the struggles of women trying to realize institutional change by organizing unions and imp- implementing laws that protect women and men in the workplace. Uh, and I think that, that that book is actually a really – a much more kind of – it's a broader kind of look at this kind of problem. Uh, and it includes this kind of problem and puts it into the context of other kind of problems. This is not just Sheryl Sandberg doing something that's that's uh, ignoring the lower class. Uh, this is part of a larger um, moment in our sort of late capitalist moment. And so um, that, that's a book. It's really interesting. That chapter was particularly interesting. And uh, so I highly recommend that one. Thank you. Uh, that That sounds like a really interesting book. Um, I, I also have a book to recommend um, that speaks to uh, a kind of corporatized um, femvertising, as I mentioned earlier, aspect of feminism. Uh, it's called We Were Feminists Once From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. Uh, it's by Andy Zeisler, um, a feminist writer that I have been reading for a long time and really, really love. Uh, she is the founding editor of a magazine whose name I will not mention because it uh, will get us a bleep, uh, but it's a feminist pop culture magazine that we've uh, quoted on this show before that listeners are probably aware of. Um, and it, it just covers the kind of history of, of advertising and feminism um, and questions this idea of um, empowered advertising and, and if that uh, is is real advertising or real feminism or something else. So We Were Feminist Once by Andy Zeisler. Um, and that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a show you'd like us to do in the future, or if you just want to say hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Danny Anderson and Katie Grubbs, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in two weeks when we'll discuss the films of Miyazaki. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>